So continue to be in prayer for that um, as, uh, as it goes on and uh, find ways that we can actually be a part, certainly to be on our knees in prayer. Um, well, I thought today uh, would be a great day uh, when we were looking at what to speak on as we take a little break, these little breaks of, from Hebrews and, and uh, uh, Ozan last week talked about what does it mean to be a disciple, what is discipleship. Uh, and so I thought, I thought it would be like, on all of your guys' like top five list of things that edify you in your devotional reading and in your meditative life as you meditate on God's word to dive into Leviticus, right? Um, so that's like, uh, like that's, that's where you go for encouragement and edification, right? I'm, yeah, like three of you are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And those people we need to watch out for. Just saying, like, all right. So they are strange. And there's, a, yeah, anyway... Um, Leviticus, uh, Leviticus is, is one of those books, and there's a few of them that you read, and you just, I don't know, if, as you, if you've gone through the Bible in a year, and you've done your little reading plan, you get to Leviticus, and you're just like, well, this is going to be a, a few weeks of just, like, torture, right? I mean, we just got to make our way through it, and that, that might sound bad, but that's the reality, right? I mean, that, it's a hard book to just read through and feel like, you know, I'm ready to tackle the day. This is, I feel close to God as, as, as I'm reading through Leviticus. It seems a little strange. So, so today I thought I would uh, maybe help us get over some of that and uh, maybe reframe it for you a little bit. You see, when we, when we come to books like this that seem to just be like detailed, really highly detailed books that just, just kind of drive us crazy in some ways, um, sometimes it's because if, if we come to the books without the right questions or without the right perspective of what this is actually about, then it really makes it dry. I don't think it's going to like beef it up to know all of that, but it will help you understand why it matters. It will give you a perspective, and so I want to do that a little bit today. Um, so before we read this chapter, chapter one of Leviticus, uh, and I'm going to give you a question to think about as I read through it so you can uh, sort of reframe what this is about. Um, Leviticus, uh, just so you know, like, to give you a little bit of background, Leviticus is the people of God. Um, they are at Mount Sinai, Right? And they are on their way to the promised land. So just try to picture, if you, if you know your Old Testament or if you've never heard anything about the Bible whatsoever, uh, just imagine uh, a whole lot of people, uh, the people of God, Israel, they are at Mount Sinai. There's been a ton of events. So the book prior to this, Exodus, the last chapters, tons of chapters of this book, especially from 20 on, are about these, the events and things that took place where God came down to his people he came down to them, he met with Moses, he delivered the Ten Commandments, and he delivered, uh, gave them all kinds of instructions about worship and about what it meant. And, and the people of God, at the foot of the mountain, did a whole bunch of stuff, like create an idol. They, they, were, they were as people are, right? They were unruly, right? And, uh, and so this is what just took place. And now these people, who God has met with them, and it was somewhat of a frightening experience, if you read the last chapters of Exodus, you realize, like, uh, this is a frightening experience. And then, not to mention, they built this thing called the tabernacle, which was basically, it's church planning in the Old Testament, right? It's, a, it's like mobile church. Uh, they've, got, they've got this thing that they, they set it up and they take it down. Everywhere they go, they take the tabernacle, they put this thing up. That's where they know that, they know that God is present because they see the tabernacle. In fact, in chapter 40, at the very end of Exodus, They've experienced the, the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. And it was an incredible experience for them to see and feel and hear and smell the presence of God uh, in their midst. So that's where Israel is at at the beginning of the book of Leviticus. And, and so uh, Moses basically is instructed by God as they're going to leave Mount Sinai. And now they're going to head to the promised land. He says, I want you to instruct my people in how to worship. I want you to make sure that you teach them, that you teach them about sacrifices and worship, and the, you teach them about the priesthood, about ceremonies, about the Day of Atonement, about feasts, about holy days, about the year of Jubilee. I want you to teach them about all the things that bore you. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, Moses is being instructed, set the people down before you head into the promised land and give them instructions on this. And we're going to find in a moment why that mattered um, big time. The message of Leviticus is this, be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. You worship a God who is absolutely perfect and holy. 
And the way that you and I represent him in this world that is filled with all kinds of chaos is by being holy as he is holy. And not only is it the, the fact that we are to be holy as God is holy, but the message of Leviticus also is a message that God in his grace provides atonement for sin. God is the one who provides the ability for us to actually be in the presence of this holy God and be able to have fellowship with him so that we may be holy as he is holy. We may know him, right? And so that the tabernacle and the sacrifices that we're going to read about today, they were for a reason. And it was a life and death sort of reason. It was serious stuff. And that, that Moses is not just teaching them something like, hey, this is probably be a good idea as you go on this little trip. No, there's, there's some serious reasons why this matters that we'll get into in just a moment. So um, with that, I figure we will stand as we read God's word this morning. I'm going to read this first chapter. And uh, as I'm reading it, here's what I want you to think about. Here's a question for you. Um, what does this chapter have to do with the mission of God? Right? As a church, our, and every church, this is true. This is not unique to Timberline. The mission of the church is to make disciples who make disciples. To go out and show and share the love of God with every man, woman, child we come in contact with, that they might know the God that we know, that they might be, be in a, brought into a relationship with him, right? That is the mission of God. And that mission is no different for the Old Testament people, right? It's not like they have a different mission, a different setting, what we're going to talk about in a minute. So what does this text have to do with mission as I read it? Think about that question. What does it have to do with God's mission for God's people. Hear, hear God's word. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. The Lord called, or, or it, it is, it, if his offering, verse 3, is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting." Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall, or, or, or and Aaron's sons, I'm, I'm like losing my spot for some reason. You know what uh, is the deal? Yeah, my wife is looking at me. I'm starting to lose my eyesight a little bit, you know, and I'm refusing to wear those specs. <laughs> refusing, right? But uh, so it's not paying off well for me today, my stubbornness. And I have this little tiny Bible that used to be adequate, so sorry. I digress. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire, on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering and food offering with a pleasing, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock... From the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut, cut it into, into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood uh, that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall offer all of it burnt and burn it on the altar, it is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves and pigeons, and the priest shall, shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its, its crop with its, with its contents and cast it beside uh, the altar on the east side, in, place for, in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. 
and the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, um, we just ask for your help this morning. Encourage us with this passage. Help us to understand the importance of your body coming together corporately to worship. Help us to understand what that's about. Lord, help us not to simply go through the motions in our lives. Father, that life is way too short, far too precious to just go through the motions, but help us to know why, why this is so important and why it matters for the big picture of your mission in this world. And we pray and ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I certainly find myself, and I hope you find yourself, and maybe it's, maybe it's just me, but as I get a little older, I'm turning 50 this year, and it's a little disconcerting, as you can tell. Um, uh, and uh, I find myself, though, asking questions more. You would think that when I was younger, and I didn't grow up in a Christian background, so I, I would ask more questions, but I find myself asking maybe more questions now. And, and really uh, wrestling with the fact that I don't, I don't want to go through the motions in my life, right? I don't want this just to be, like, we, we have a short period of time that we live on this earth. We want it to count. We don't want to just do things because that's what we do. We don't want to just say, well, we go to church on Sunday morning because that's what we do. We sing songs because that's what we do. We hear a preacher preach because that's what we do. Why, why do we do these things? Why does it matter? What does it have to do the things that we do with our lives, the, the reasons, do we understand the reasons why this matters? Because when you lose the why, you will lose the passion for it. You will eventually wander off and go astray, and you will find your heart grow cold to these things, and it won't matter, as happens to many, many that I know very close to me, and it can happen to you and I. And we don't want to take that for granted. Life is too short. If this matters, then let's know why it matters, and let's worship the Lord with our whole hearts. So, that's what Leviticus chapter 1 is about. Actually, chapter 1 is the taste. The whole book is really about that. Literally, the whole book. We could preach one sermon on the whole book, but we're just going to look at chapter 1. And we're not even going to get into the tiny little details of chapter 1, like why the north side and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to go there. I just want you to see the big picture today. So, let me just give you five steps that took place for worship in Israel. Let me just help you understand sort of the, the, the nuts and bolts of the text for a minute. So there's five things that would happen. So the first thing, uh, step number one for the, for the Old Testament worshiper was to bring an offering, to pick an offering, right? And there's three levels of offerings you could bring. Uh, do you know why that is? Like, just think about why is it that he has the livestock, he's got the, the sheep or the goats, and then he's got birds. Um, why, why is there three different offerings, Right? Uh, part of that was because, the big reason is because uh, everyone was to be able to come to worship. Everyone. Not every, if, if the requirement was for every person to come th to, to bring a sacrifice that was a bull, then most of the people in Israel would not be able to bring any offerings before the Lord. Because you had to have a lot of livestock and be pretty wealthy to actually have a bull in the first place, right? And not everyone even could bring a sheep or a goat, Right? And so, so, but if you had goats and sheep, you could bring a sheep or a goat, right? That was, that was an option. But, but even the poorest of the poor among them could bring an offering, and it was a pigeon, right? It was a dove or a pigeon um, that they could bring, a turtle dove or a pigeon they could bring before the Lord as an offering. So it represents the fact there's no discriminating when it comes to worship. Everyone, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, Everyone comes, and their offerings are treated the same. Just because you brought the bull, you weren't somehow to be looking down on the person like, he only brought a pigeon today. <laughs> Must be rough. Right? No, that wasn't the case. God did not see, didn't discriminate, right? Right? But he's allowing for, in his grace, everyone to come to the table. Everyone to be able to join together and worship. And so their first step was to pick uh, an offering to bring. That was step one, to come worship at the tabernacle. Secondly was to present that animal at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and it was supposed to be inspected by the priests. Why was it supposed to be inspected? Because, see, it was not acceptable to bring crippled Elmer to the, to the worship, right? Like, you got that one sheep out in there, it's got only three legs, and you're like, you know what, we're going to butcher him next week anyway, let's, let's take him. 
There's no cost in that, right? It's not a big deal. Like, No, God said, you notice three times in every single one, it says without blemish. There's a, there's a standard, right? And so the offering that was brought was supposed to be without blemish. It was supposed to be your best. And so they weren't just to pick any offering, but they were supposed to bring their best, no matter what it was. Now, I do want to just say, um, for those of you uh, who understand farming, you understand how serious that is. Right? You think about the person who brings a bull, like the person who has uh, a lot of livestock, and they bring their bull, and not just any bull, but they had to bring the best bull. Now, I grew up on the farm. Bulls are the most expensive animal you buy, and they are the most important thing you have because without a good bull, you have bad livestock, and it's not good, right? And to lose a bull is devastating. That's a serious sacrifice, right? So the person who had livestock, had tons of livestock, for them to bring a bull was serious. But the person who took care of sheep, for them to bring the best sheep that's without blemish, to bring that, that one male sheep or goat that was really important, right? That was a serious deal. And for those who were poor to bring a pigeon, even to go and find and get, get the right bird to bring was a big deal. Uh, it was a cost, and so they brought it to the priest. It was inspected. Step three, they then killed the animal. They killed the animal in such a way as to drain all the blood out of the animal's body. Just imagine what this would be like this morning. You got a basin here. And we used to do this when we butchered on the farm. You got the basin here. You put the animal out over the basin and you slit its throat. That's how you drain. That's the quickest way to drain the blood out of an animal. And I some of you are kind of going like that. Um, and you just, like, see, no, no kids said in worship back then, Daddy, I'm bored. Like, that didn't happen, right? I'm just imagining the dudes on the front row are like wide-eyed, like, oh, you know, like this is, like we brought, we brought this sacrifice, you know, my dad took the best out of the flock, we brought it here, and now we're sitting on the front row watching its throat get slit and the blood coming out, right? You, there's, there's a teachable moment, right, in worship, right? It was a big deal, uh, pretty serious. And so you drain the blood out, and then the blood was offered to God. It was splashed by the priest on the sides of the altar. And it was an offering. And so it, it represented the fact that God provided a blood sacrifice for sin. It was, it was to make atonement for sin. Think about how serious you would understand sin if you were visibly having to see and sacrifice one of your own animals whose blood had to be spilt so that you could have your sins atoned for in order to be in the presence of God. You see, that's the whole reason why all these sacrifices had to take place is because of the sinfulness of people. Their own sin. They knew it. They physically, visibly had to bring an offering in order to deal with their sin. And then fifth, the worshiper would cut the animal. Notice it's the worshiper who does this. The priest didn't do it for him. They're the ones that had to kill the animal. They're the ones that cut the animal up. And then the priest arranged it on the altar, on the fire, and burnt all of it. It was their job. This is a noisy, messy, smelly worship service. This is a lively place. Think about this. This is a lively worship service. There are things going on. Uh, people, I'm guessing, were fairly attentive. Um, and the purpose of that burnt offering was simply to make atonement for worshippers' sins. Notice seven times, seven times in this passage it says either to the Lord or before the Lord. There was an understanding that this was a serious matter because we're coming before, again, a holy God who was absolutely perfect. And he gave us instructions and a way for us to be close to him to deal with our sin. In order to come into a perfect God's presence, we had to deal with our imperfection, right? And so God provided a means for that. And there was an understanding that we are going before the Lord. This is being done to the Lord. It was both an individual thing but also a corporate thing. We did this together. People bringing their sacrifices together and individually offering them. It was individual and a corporate uh, issue. So let's, let's pan out a little further. So that's the understanding of the text, right? Um, you bring an offering without blemish uh, of, of one of these three categories, and it was offered to the Lord. The blood was splattered, uh, and it was to atone for sins. Now let's, let's pan out just a little wider for a minute, and then we're going to zero back in on why this matters to us. I call it the so what question, like who cares? Why should we even care about this? In Genesis chapter 12, 
God, um, God makes a covenant. In fact, the Bible's filled with covenants. And covenants are very important. God makes an agreement with his people. Most of which his people, not most of which, all of which his people cannot fulfill, right? Uh, he makes a, an, an agreement, he makes a covenant, an agreement between him and the people of Israel, and they fail to live up to it every time, but God never fails to live up to his end of it. And in fact, at one point in Genesis chapter 17, we see that God, God shows that he actually fulfills your side of the covenant and his side. He does both, right? Because he knows that we, that we are, are unable to actually live up to this. And so in Genesis chapter 12, we have this, what's called the Abrahamic covenant. This is the, the covenant that God made with Abraham. We could back up even further, but we'll just, we'll just use this one. And in the first three verses, let me just read it. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, this is Abram before he became Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Notice when God calls us to do something, it requires something of us. He has to go, right? And so he says, go to your father's, to, to, the, to the land that I'm going to show you. There's a great plan, right? Okay, we're just going to start moving. Don't worry, kids. We're leaving home. God's going to show us where we're going to stop, right? I don't know. That just seems like it would be hard for us to do in our mindset. And I will make you, he's talking to Abram, a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that... Catch that. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. There's a mission word there, right? I'm going to do these things through you, Abram, so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless you that you'll be a blessing to other people. There's a mission point right there. And then he says, um, I will... Uh, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you, listen to this, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a pretty serious mission statement. God is saying, through you, Abraham, through your offsprings, by me making you a great nation, by me blessing you and you being a blessing, all of the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, we know, just jumping ahead in the story, we know that the rest of this book from 12 on, and actually it's been going on before that, but we'll just say from chapter 12 on, the rest of this whole book called the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament, is all about God fulfilling that promise. He is going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And how is he going to do that? We know from Galatians, right? He says it's through the one offspring. He made Israel a great nation whose People numbered the sands of the seashore, and he did that in order to preserve this one people, and within the one people, one tribe of that people, in order to bring about the Messiah, the Savior, who would be the Savior of the world, right? Which would bless the whole world. And so, and so this, is, this is what that's about. But notice, notice, I'm going to bless you, uh, I'm going to make you a father of this incredible nation, and I'm going to bless you that you would be a blessing, and in being a blessing, ultimately, the whole world's going to be blessed. This is a mission point here. So that's what God had called them to be and to do. They were to be the people of God, and they were to bless people. Even in the Old Testament, they were to be a blessing to those around. Now, um, the people around them did not want them to around. <laughs> that's the problem, right? That's why there's so much war in the Old Testament, and that's why there's so much bloodshed, because... Uh, the, the nations of the world were trying to stomp out Israel, and the bigger picture of that is they were trying to keep the Messiah from coming. That's what all that bloodshed is about when you read your Old Testament, and you're wondering, like, man, it just seems like people are dying right and left, right? It's because people are seeking to thwart the purposes of God, and God will have nothing of it. So, let's go back to our text now. Why would then God have a book called Leviticus where he would give very detailed, specific, and maybe even a little bit boring instructions as to what, how they were to worship him at every level of their life. Well, where are the Jews? They're in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. Where are they going? They're going to a promised land. Why are they going there? Genesis chapter 12, to be a blessing to the people, right? Um, and... So God's sending them into this place to be a blessing. And in fact, we find here 
many times in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it says that God sends them in there, and he works in such a way through them to show his power and his might and his mercy and his grace, and it says, so that they may know that the Lord is God. That is like a theme from especially in the book of Exodus and on, that they may know that I am God. That's the goal, that people would know that through them, through their lives. They would be able to see the power of God in them. Here's the problem, and here's why this matters to us. The problem is God knew how fickle they were. The problem is, is that he knows that his people are easily seduced easily tempted by all the things. So he knows they are going into a land that is plentiful and it is filled with all kinds of worship. It's exactly the same type of land that we have today, right? There's all kinds of worship all around us. And that worship is tangible, visible things, right? They are going to go into a land where they're going to see visible gods that you can put your hands on, idols, things that the worship in the promised land in ancient, ancient times was very tangible. It, you could smell it. You could see it. You could touch it, right? And it was, it was the thing that everyone was doing, right? And so here's this people. They're going to go into a land in which the, the end thing to do is to worship th- in this way, to practice your spirituality in this way, to worship all these things. And God knew that they would easily be led astray. He knew very simply that they were fickle that they would see these things, that they would smell these things, that, they would, that they, would, they would know immediately that they are on the outside of this society, that they are the outcasts, that they don't belong, that their understanding of God. In fact, think about this. Worship in those days, just like today, was tangible. Imagine them going in there, and they are setting up, and they are worshiping a God that you cannot see. You cannot touch. Right? And so, but all the gods and all the worship that was in the promised land was very tangible. You could see it all. It was very clear. In fact, uh, you go to the Old New Testament and the Apostle Paul, when he's going through the countryside in the book of Acts, and, and he leads some people in this one town to Christ. And the, the silversmith is like really ticked off and leads a riot to get Paul in trouble. Why did they do that? Because, because all these people are becoming Christians, they're not asking him to build any more idols so that they could go worship. It cut into his profits, right? Because the worship in that day was very tangible stuff. Like they would literally carve out wood things and stone things and steel things. And they would make these idols that they would physically worship with their own eyes. And now Israel is supposed to come into that land and say, let us worship the the one true God. But you can't see him, (laughs) right? But you certainly know who he is and you would know that by their lives, That is, unless they get seduced and begin to live like the culture, right? And so God knew this, and that's why God instructs Moses in the book of Leviticus to begin to instruct his people before they go to the promised land of how to worship. Make sure they know, this is what it means to worship me. And he gave them these instructions so that they would be able to faithfully and effectively bear witness in the midst of an unruly and godless culture they would be able to bear witness in that culture to who the one true God really is. Worship, then, is witness. Worship, the the way we worship, the reasons we worship, is mission, right? It bears witness to each other. The way the person beside you takes seriously the worship of God matters. It bears witness to each other that that this God that we serve is a holy, awesome, gracious, merciful, and powerful God. And it matters that we come together as a people and we give him the honor that he deserves. That matters. It's also a witness to those who are not here or those who just happen to stumble in here or those who hear about here. It's a witness to them. Worship is and was witness. It was a way in which they preserved the people of God. It's a way that they bore witness to God's faithfulness and his holiness and his goodness. It was a way that they encouraged one another. So, what would, so when you think about that, that worship is witness or mission, uh, when you think about that, what does your heart for worship say to other people about what you believe about God? 
there's a discipleship question. Like, what is it about the way we worship that would somehow point people to see God in all of his glory and his grace and his goodness? It's a little different question than, you know, did the band do okay today? Was the preacher on or off point? You know, right? A little different question. What about me and my heart? What do I bring to this place? How do I worship God? What matters about that, right? Well, let me, let me just transition them. Let me give you eight things that we can learn from this text. So God giving instructions on how to atone for sin in these very specific ways, and literally the rest of this is going to go, the rest of the book of Leviticus is literally like chapter one. <laughs> it's all the same, just different things. He's going to teach them about all these different aspects of worship. So what can we learn about, about God and about um, uh, our worship from this text? Uh, first of all, the Jews were made to understand that to worship God is to worship him with everything you had. Right? Think about that. Like, Just the fact that they had to pick out the best offering to bring to God was that in itself said something, right? It said that to worship God is to worship him with everything I got, the best of everything I got. And, and so, and so the, the Israelites understood this. And in fact, Jesus also gives us the same command, right? Because when he sums up the law, what did he say in the, greatest, in the great commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, it, it, in, in essence, he's saying, it's not even getting caught up in all the little details of heart, soul, mind. He's just simply saying, it's a way of Jesus saying, love God with everything you got. That's the way we live for God. God has given us everything. So, so the way in which we worship him, the way in which we love him, is to give him everything we got, to lay it all on the line, to, to literally surrender our lives to God and say, God, I am yours. You use me. You use my time, my talents, my mind, my heart, my thoughts, everything. Use it as you see fit. I'm bringing it all to you. It's yours. And so the Jews understood this, that everything was that, that to worship God was to worship him with everything. They also understood, secondly, that worship, there was no spectators in worship. Everyone was a participant. It wasn't simply a matter of like coming and just like sort of watching what's going on in the background. No, you, you had a part to play. You had a role. You didn't come empty-handed, number one. You came with something, but you, but you came and you were a participant in it. This wasn't simply about a few people performing and doing this or that. This was about we, together, the people of God, are coming to worship, and all of us are coming to worship. It's about giving God the honor that is due. It's about really showing through everything we do how great and glorious our God really is. Third, we understand that when we come to worship, we bring something to worship. We don't just receive <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me pause there for a minute. So you do in fact receive. Do you know that worship, when we come together as God's people, God himself is ministering to us. He ministers to us by being present with each other, by seeing each other through fellowship. There's a ministry there. There's, he ministers to us through singing when all of our voices are lift up in one accord, singing one song that sings, you know, how great is our God. When we're, when we're doing that together like that is, God is ministering to your soul, encouraging you, building you up. It's different than if you're in the shower singing that same worship song, right? That's cool if you do that. Like, I sound way better in the shower. But... But there's something powerful about how God ministers to your soul when there's a bunch of people together all in one accord singing the same things and praising God for his goodness and his grace. There's something powerful about that. And so we do receive ministry from God through the teaching of his word, through song and through prayer and just through fellowship with each other. But we don't just receive, we also are to bring something to the table. It's not just about receiving it changes things when we ask ourselves, what do we bring this morning to worship? What do I bring 
What do I contribute? Why am I here? The primary reason is not simply to receive, but it's also to bring something. I, I love how Psalm 96, uh, let me just read these words. I love this psalm. Uh, psalm 96 says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell, listen to all these things, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. You see Genesis 12 in here and the, the mission to be a blessing, to let people know about who God is. His marvelous works among all the people. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, for he is to be feared above all the gods. You can see it there, right? Uh, they're going into a land where there's tons of gods. They're declaring his salvation. They're declaring his greatness so that people will know that he is to be feared above all those gods. There's no rivalry. He's, he is the God. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord. This is what the definition of worship is. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, a glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name, that he deserves. And then I love this. And bring an offering. And come into his courts. All of that, all that grandeur, right? Like talking about the glory of God to go and bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness and tremble before him all the earth. Notice that. Do you see the witness there? Worship the Lord as God's people in the splendor of his holiness and tremble before him, who? All of the earth. Their worship was to bear witness to the greatness and the glory of God. They were to declare these things, not just for their own benefit, certainly for their own benefit, but it also bore witness to other people that the whole earth would tremble before God, that all of them would know of God's greatness and God's holiness and God's goodness. But I love that where he says, we are to bring an offering. We are to, we are to bring something. So, so and ask yourself the question, what do I bring? In fact, we pause for a moment. Just think about this. How would it change your critique of worship services if you thought about it from the standpoint of what do I bring to the table? How am I coming into worship? Maybe, maybe when I missed that note when I was playing a minute ago and I missed the note and I sang the wrong line, maybe my edification has nothing to do with that. Maybe I have a terrible attitude, <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe I'm mad at my wife or my husband. My kid was being mean this morning to my other kid, and I was really ticked off when I walked in here. There could be a lot of factors, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but it does change our perspective when we ask ourselves that question, right? It changes how we view worship. So what can we bring to worship? Certainly we bring, I think what we tend to go to, right, we bring an offering. We think literally of a physical, tangible money, material offering, right? We, we bring an offering, we present it, and certainly that is part of it, right? But I think it's way more than that. What do you bring to the worship service? Maybe, maybe, or think about it this way. How do you prepare to come here and worship God as God's people? What did you do this morning to get yourself in a frame of mind that we are coming, as our text says, we are coming before the Lord to offer sacrifices, to, to give praise, right? We are, we are before the Lord, like the holy God, right, of all the universe. We are coming before him, and, and we need to get in that mindset, like this is why we're here. And we are coming to bring an offering, to bring praise, to bring worship, to bring encouragement, right? We are coming here to bring something. I'll tell you what the disciples brought. I was thinking about this in Luke chapter 12. The disciples, when they came back from uh, the little mission trip that, God, that Jesus sent them on, what did they do? They got together, and they were praising God, it says, and they were sharing the stories of what God did on their trip. You know what you bring? One of the things that you bring here this morning is the very faithfulness of God in your life this last week. If you're paying attention, there are things happening this last week in your life. Things that happened at work, ways that you found yourself having to pray for something that you didn't want to deal with, 
There are challenges in your home that you were dealing with and you were having to trust God. I'm not talking about things that are like, and God showed up and he parted the sea and everything is good and now my wife agrees with me. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm talking about how God gave you a right attitude, how God worked to comfort you and to calm you and to give you perspective, all kinds of, about how God gave you the courage to talk to this person who was hurting and to listen to them and to be patient with them, or how God gave you the ability with joy to overcome the annoyance of your boss or the annoyance of your employees, right? God's faithfulness in the details of your life. You bring here this morning... The work of God for seven days, six other days, right? You bring that here this morning, and somebody needs to know how God was at work in your life last week. Now, every one of us cannot stand up here today, and we go through each one of us and do that. But no, but you talk to each other before and after the service, right? You call each other on the phone. What do you bring here this morning? You could be an encouragement to somebody, but that takes vulnerability, and it's a little scary. Or I think a lot of us think, well, my deal's not that big. The faithfulness of God in my life this last week, but it's somebody else has got way bigger stuff, right? No, that's bull. No. Every way that God has been faithful in your life, the fact that you're here this morning is evidence of that. God has been faithful. You bring this morning even just your own story. When, when this Psalm 96 was talking about declaring among the nations the marvelous works to his marvelous works to all the people, right? I get the feeling they didn't, that, that didn't mean just going outside and going, God is great. You know, I have a feeling it, it was wrapped up in stories, don't you? Like it's wrapped up in real tangible stories. Like there was this axe head, it floated in the water. That's pretty cool. That was in the Bible. <laughs> it didn't happen last week. That was in, that was in the Old Testament. Just, you know, it didn't happen to me. So... But, I mean, some, there were stories, right? There were things that happened where we saw the hand of God at work, even just encouraging you and helping you be calm in the midst of difficulties. That's what we bring. We bring ourselves. We bring a heart that is rightly ready to worship God. We don't just walk in. In fact, that's one of the things that um, we learned at the Mount Sinai. You don't just get to rush into the presence of God. Like, there's a sense in which we prepare for, for worship with God. Another point, why do we bring our best? That's maybe be a simple one, but think about this. Worship reflects our dependence on God. When they brought the best, it reflects the fact that they trusted God. And not only does it reflect the trust of God, it also reflects the value of the object of our worship, right? So the, I, they brought their best because the one in whom they are worshiping is, is of ultimate worth and value. And so they brought their best, right, because that's who God is. Now, let me, let me just pause for a minute. That doesn't mean that you come here in the morning and if you ha did have a fight on the way here or you did have chaos or your last week was terrible and you just feel a wreck, right? That doesn't mean you got to stop outside the door and get yourself all put together, right? Broken, sinful people are the ones invited into the presence of God. Especially, maybe exclusively actually, those who know they're broken and sinful and they need God. Those are the ones that come in. So you don't got to figure all that stuff out. You just got to be honest, like, man, I'm coming in here, it is a, I'm a wreck. I need God. I need him to work. I need minister to today, and I need to encourage other people. You know what other people need to know? That you had a really terrible week, because they did too, possibly. And you sharing, man, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how to learn to pray in this. I don't know what to do. That's still a story that's encouraging to somebody else to know that other people deal with real life as well. We have this funny thing, right, that I used to call it where you... Uh, you know, you're fighting on the way to church, and you're like, you're walking up to the door, you know, and you got your kids, you're like, when, when we get home, oh, man. And then, and then you walk through the front doors, right, and it's like this wand, like, hey, brother, how's it going, man? Oh, better than I deserve, right? It's all good. I'm, God's so, you know what I mean? Like, stop that, right? Just come in here and be like, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. Like, I need Jesus. <laughs> Give me Jesus. <laughs> Um, our, our attitude and our heart needs to reflect the value of God. Um, there was a story, I think I probably told this here five years ago, but a uh, story of a yard sale that happened. And this guy put out all of his, you know, what, one man's trash, another man's treasure. And so he put out all of his stuff, like all of us do at times. And people come by, you know, pay a buck for this and a buck for that. Well, uh, there, was, uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff in this guy's yard. This is actually a true story. He, he, uh, uh, 
purchased a bunch of things, you know, for Bach or, you know, whatever. And there was this old beaten up violin that he purchased uh, for, I don't even know, just a few bucks. He goes home. Uh, and as he's looking this thing over to see if it's worth anything, uh, I should have put this picture up there. Um, it says in the inside of it, Antonius Stradivarius Cremensis, 1716. Yeah. Did you, did you hear that in the room? See, that's worship. Once you understand the value of something, and you really understand it, you, you find your heart going, wow. Right? That, that violin ended up being worth well over a million dollars. Just that one violin. Only 1,100 of them, I think, made ever. One of the most famous violin makers ever. Insane. Right? But I just loved, like, you just experienced the way we are to come into worship right there. Just in the hush of the room where it was like, oh, oh. the people who knew, right? Not everybody knows the value of a Stradivarius. I didn't until I read the story years ago. All of a sudden you're like, wow, that's a big deal. Like a violin that costs a million dollars, probably worth, you know, it's just wood, but anyway. But did you see? That's the attitude, that's what we bring right there, that awe. How do we prepare our hearts and our minds? How do we get with God and, 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 and truly know the, his worth and his value to the point where we're like, man, this is a big deal. Like we, we are in the presence of, of, of the most glorious, uh, of, of the greatness of a holy God. That's why our best. It's messy. Worship is messy. Even today, not just in the Old Testament, messy, noisy, smelly, people being, you know, animals being killed. It's messy, but it's even messy today for all the reasons I just said. I don't have to spend much time on this. The reason why it's messy is because all of us are here, right? We are messy people. Our lives don't fit into all the neat categories we'd like them to, right? We are messy people. There's only two kinds of people. There are those who are messed up and those who are in denial, right? There are those, and those who are in denial, like, like you get tired of them, right? Because they always seem to put on the best face, but the reality is worship is messy because when we bring our stories into this place, when we bring ourselves into this place, when we bring our struggles and our sins and our wrestlings, it's messy. It doesn't fit into perfect little categories. Worship is, is people who are coming here because we know we need God. Not because we know we have it put together. Not because we have all the knowledge we need. We don't know. The more we know, the more we realize we know nothing. Right? the more we realize how much we need him. And so we're coming in here as messy people with messes in our lives because we need God, and God has graciously supplied the fact that we need each other. We need each other to share and to encourage and to build one another up. And lastly, lastly, the eighth lesson here. I don't think I've ever had this many points in a sermon. The eighth lesson is this. What's really going on in this text? What's this really about? Um, ultimately, it's about Jesus. We know this because we know the end of the story. We've read Luke 24, where Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus, right? And the disciples are there, and, and he begins from the beginning and goes all the way through all of redemption history and explains how everything, everything was about him, right? It's all about Jesus. When, when Israel, think about this in terms of the gospel, when Israel was bringing their offerings into the tabernacle to, to ha atone for their sins, they were acting out the gospel in advance. Every single time they're acting out the gospel, they're acting out the fact that one day the fulfillment of God's promise, the fulfillment of, in fact, those sacrifices, all of these ceremonial things that just seem so tedious, Right? They, they, they are looking forward to and anticipating the reality that God is going to provide the ultimate sacrifice. And these sacrifices of bulls and goats and sheep and rams, these are temporary deals. But there's one day going to come through, through God's people, there's going to come one who would provide the ultimate once and for all sacrifice. Worship, even in the Old Testament, was ultimately about that. It was ultimately this declaration of the gospel, even if they didn't get it fully, right? And we know they didn't, right? Because we know we wouldn't either, right? But, the, but, the, but when they acted that out, every single time they would come together and they would bring a sacrifice, it was pointing to Jesus. 
This is what Jesus himself tells us. It was pointing to him. It's all about him. He is that once and for all atoning sacrifice for sin. And so today, in this day, we also come before God, a holy God, and yet we are on the other side of the story. We come to this thing called the, the Lord's Supper, to the table. And we do this every week. And I love doing it every week because this is what it's about. We come here to this table together as God's people. I love the fact that now we, we stand and we come and get the elements and we go back to our seat. Like together, we're declaring this sense of unity, that our unity is in the fact that our worship is all about Jesus. It's about his death, his sacrifice for sin. If it were not for this, we would have no hope. We would be without, with, we, would be, we would not be able to come into the presence of God. We would not be able to have the sweetness of fellowship that we have. We would not be able to literally be in the presence of a holy God without any fear whatsoever. And be able to stand in awe of who he is, knowing that there's no retribution coming my way. There's no punishment for sin that God is going to give to me because that punishment has already been borne by Jesus himself. That's what it's all about. Ultimately, Leviticus chapter 1 and every single page of Leviticus after that is all about Jesus. When you read it with that in mind, Leviticus becomes a little more interesting. Just a little. But it becomes more interesting. And when you realize that all of their worship that they were being taught was a way for them to live amongst a people who were godless and to bear witness to the reality of who God is. And God wanted them to get that right. Right? He wanted their hearts to be right in that because the thing that everyone needs more than anything else is Jesus. And that's what we want as well. So we're going to come to a point of communion. I just want you to hear these words as we just think about communion today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, if you believe that all of life is about Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was raised to newness of life, that, that all who believe in him uh, will receive eternal life, that if you believe that, that he is your Savior and Lord, then I, I not only encourage you to come up here today, but enthusiastically so, right? To come up here with great joy, knowing that this sacrifice for sin was for your sin, that you might be free, that you might live in the presence of God. I love 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 25. Let this sort of be um, a text for us. It says, he committed no sin, talking about Jesus, nor was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. This is a worship right there, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's a, that's a point of worship for us too. When we come here, we are entrusting ourselves to God, our lives to him. And then he says, and he himself, it's taken right out of Isaiah, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now returned to the shepherd and to the overseer of your souls. Um, that's a beautiful lead-in to just think about what communion is all about, right? He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And therefore as worshipers, and even through our worship, we would bear witness to the reality of who God is. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your grace today. May you encourage us and teach us and instruct us in how to worship you. Even as we come to this table, Lord, let us, be, let us come with celebration, with great joy, and be thankful for all that you have done for us in Christ uh, by dying on the cross for our sins. And we ask and pray this in your name. Amen.